0: You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Rosalind English. Every day in the UK, lives are suddenly, brutally, wickedly taken away. Victims are shot or stabbed. Less often, they are strangled or suffocated or beaten to death. Rarely, they are poisoned, pushed off high buildings, drowned or set alight. Then there are the many who are killed by dangerous drivers or corporate gross negligence. There are a lot of ways you can kill someone. I know because I've seen some of them at close quarters. These are the words of Her Honour Wendy Joseph QC in the preface to her book Unlawful Killings, Life, Love and Murder, Trials at the Old Bailey. Until recently, Wendy was a judge at the Old Bailey, trying mainly allegations of murder and other homicides. She practised as a barrister for over 30 years, then sat as a full-time judge until she retired earlier this year. Because she no longer sits as a judge, she was able to publish this fascinating book, which I read in one sitting. She writes with great clarity about the technical processes of the criminal law and the implications of these for the people before her in court. Wendy, I understand that you read English and Law at Cambridge. I did too, but sadly not to such great effect. (laughs) Welcome to LawPod UK. Thank you very much for asking me. I just want to go back, actually, to reading English at Cambridge and to what extent that led you to write this book. Uh, you must have done the tragedy paper. And there was there was a lot in this book that had had the shaping
1: of a background in English literature. Yes, I, I went to, up to Cambridge to read English uh, because it was what I had always wanted to do. And I only changed to law because I really had to earn a living when I left at university. And as my mother politely put it, she didn't think I'd be making a living as a writer. And what else did I want to do with my English degree? So I changed to law. Uh, But I've always done criminal law. And of course, criminal law is certainly at the bar. It's largely advocacy. It's largely about the power of words, the way in which you put words together in order to persuade people to a a certain conclusion. And so I suppose there is a link all the way through. But it's lovely to have arrived at my age, which is pretty old, and to go right back to where you always wanted to be at the beginning, to be working with books.
0: Indeed. And I, I want to ask how you came to... The idea of this book, how you shape these stories, what these stories were, how did you go about crafting it?
1: Well, the idea of the book came about because as well as having the day job in court, uh, I was also a diversity and community relations judge, which meant that I had a great deal to do with trying to make the world of the courts understandable to people outside the world of the courts, that was one half of the job. The other half was trying to bring people into the job itself. But I used to spend a lot of time with school children, with, well, with any group really that had the patience to listen to me. And in lockdown, I couldn't do it. I was away from the courts. Um, my court was shut. Some of the courtrooms were sitting, but mine wasn't. I had five months when I was doing very little except some um, stuff online. And I took the opportunity to try and bridge the gap with the work I couldn't do with diversity and community relations. And once I began to try and set out for people to read what it was like in a courtroom it sort of got a life of its own and took off. As to how I chose the stories, how I crafted the material, all I really did, Rosalind, was to think of the things that I thought were both interesting and important to people at large, I mean, the whole of our society. So one of the stories, Fiery Furnace, is concerned with knife crime amongst children. Another one, Veil of Tears, is concerned with gang culture and how children get drawn, youngsters get drawn into gangs. Another one has to do with how sexual offending has a knock-on effect upon the victims. That's uh, amidst the alien corn. Another has to do with the power of the jury, and so on. And what I did was to sit down and in each case with each subject, reflect upon the things that I had come across in cases of that nature, and then I drew from them all different things that had in fact happened, but I wove them into one story, so that in effect each of the stories in the book isn't true in the sense that it didn't actually happen in that way in a courtroom. But it is true in the sense that every single thing has happened in a courtroom and I have seen it happen and I've just woven them together. One of your many rave reviews describes the book as a novel
0: and indeed it is. As you say, it's a series of intellect, dramatic human stories leading to a close. But in addition to the immense humaneness of this book and the stories you tell, you are very careful to to include quite technical detail about the criminal processes, such as, for example, the discount that you get in sentences if you're a defendant who please, yeah. pleads guilty. And quite a lot of your defendants in this book, to my surprise, and I think to most people's surprise, do plead guilty. What What is the significance of that? The significance of the
1: technicalities that I've put in. And the effect Um, of pleading guilty, yes. I was very concerned that people should understand what happens in a courtroom. And one of the things that's constantly brought to my attention is how strange it seems to people listening to a sentencing exercise as to how we end up, where we end up. So you may start with a sentence of 12 years and end up with a sentence of eight years, of which a defendant will only serve a half or two-thirds. And if you explain that to someone, you see eyes widen and jaws drop, and then you see eyes roll. And I thought it was important to try and explain how that works. And of course, one of the biggest discounts does come with a plea of guilty, And the rules are really quite simple. Someone is entitled to a discount on a sentence, generally speaking, of a third, if they enter a plea of guilty at the earliest opportunity. And so on a long sentence, that makes a massive difference. If you were sending someone to prison for a sentence of 21 years and they get the full discount, they're going to get 14 years. And then, of course, they're only going to serve a proportion of that in in any event. And the reason for that really significant discount is, I suppose, multifold. First of all, it's done primarily to encourage pleas of guilty, and that's the purpose of it. The purpose of encouraging pleas of guilty is that I suppose primarily and above anything else, it saves victims and witnesses all the anxiety that comes of waiting for a trial and then when the day arrives of going to court and then all the grief of having to relive whatever it is they've come to tell the court about and to be cross-examined about it. And then all the anxiety comes as to whether or not they're going to be Believed so. So that's a, a one hugely important aspect. Uh, another hugely important aspect is the vast saving uh, of costs, because to run a trial at the Bailey is unbelievably expensive. In, in any crown court, it is. Most trials at the Old Bailey last between three weeks and ten weeks, I suppose. So you can imagine the saving on the public purse by a plea of guilty. And, of course, the, the next effect is that if someone pleads guilty and they're not taking up that court time, it vacates that court to deal with someone else who is Waiting for their trial. So that's another defendant sitting in custody waiting for their trial, another victim and witnesses waiting to come to court and give their evidence. All of these things can be speeded up. So, what on the face of it looks like a very large discount, in fact, is well founded in logic and I'm interested that you were surprised how many people do plead guilty. I suppose it is true that in most murder trials, people don't, because the rules are slightly different there, and the sentences are not open in the same way. Sentence for murder can only be life imprisonment, and what you're talking about is the minimum term, and how long that would be. But overall, in the Crown Court, a substantial number of cases are dealt with by guilty pleas. And if you look at the thing right across the criminal spectrum, including at the magistrate's court level, the vast majority of cases, I mean, the overwhelming majority of cases are disposed of by guilty pleas.
0: I just want to go back to your book and discuss another difficulty that encountered by judges, which is the reluctant witness so for example in one of your stories a mother regrets alerting the authorities to the possibility that her daughter might have attempted infanticide and she doesn't want to get onto the witness stand how did you how do you deal with that sort of problem
1: with reluctant witnesses it's um It's a perennial problem, um, particularly in violence within a household. Uh, I guess a lot of people would think how cruel the law is to put someone in that position. The story you're talking about, which I think is called um, Amidst the Alien Corn, is about a mother who is the only person who can give evidence about what her daughter not very old, about 20, did to her granddaughter, a baby. The court has huge powers in terms of contempt of court to deal with reluctant witnesses, but nobody wants to make life more difficult for a woman like Mrs. Manders. The problem is that the law courts are not really concerned with mrs manders they are concerned with the effect of crime upon society as a whole i suppose perhaps a sensible way to look at it is you don't bring a prosecution in the name of the victim or the complainant the prosecution is brought on behalf of the public it's the, although it is brought in the name of the queen it's the public that is the prosecutor in the case, because what is being protected is society. And so, as you will have heard said over and over again, hard cases make bad law. If you try and adjust a case, try and adjust the law to the particular hardships of a case, you can actually create huge difficulties So what I've tried to do in that story is to lay out the pros and cons of pushing this lady into giving her evidence. And I demonstrate how the court will try to make sure she is given advice by someone who is qualified, someone up in the bar mess who will come and do it pro bono, who will talk to her, who will give her advice. And then the effect of her giving evidence, as opposed to the effect of her not giving evidence, and the damage that could be done to her child if she gives evidence, the damage that could be done to her grandchild if she doesn't give evidence. And and so it's always a very difficult call for a judge to try and work out the best approach. But the law is the law, and you can't just ignore it because your heart bleeds for someone.
0: That takes us neatly to another large point you make about law and society. In your story, which is called In the Veil of Tears, you say, the law is not made for the sharp blade of vengeance. How important is it to explain the difference between justice and vengeance?
1: Terribly important and almost impossible to do for those who are really deeply involved. If you're the parent who's lost their child or the teenager who's lost their best friend, and you can see in the dock the person whom the jury has found did that deed, caused that death, um you're not really interested in justice what you want is vengeance but that's actually not what the court is about it comes back to the point i was making before that the whole point about the courtroom is it's there to make our our law run smoothly and the reason we have laws is so that society will run smoothly one of the problems that I perennial I was going to say perennially face not anymore. one of the problems I used to perennially face was anger where sentencing guidelines suggested a sentence that was really much lower than those who were the victims of the crime felt was the right sentence which brings us back to the question of what the purpose of the sentences, which brings us right back to your question, what do you do to achieve justice? If what you want at the end of the day is to make society run smoothly, and you've got kids that you're going to lock up from the age of 16 to the age of, I don't know, if you send them inside for 25 years to the time when they will have lived their lives one and a half times over again in custody. There is no real way you're then going to release them into society and think they're going to slip seamlessly back into it. It isn't going to happen. They will have spent all their formative adolescence and young adulthood In a situation, most of them will be boys, and so they will have been amongst men all of that time, will have had no opportunity to form normal relationships with a wider group of people, will have no experience of managing their own lives, organising their own lives, and then you're going to release them back into society. And we're building up quite a headwind of them that one day are all going to come back into society. And what you want is for that society to run smoothly. Well, I only have to say it for you to see the difficulties that are going to arise. On the other hand, the sentences must be proportionate to the gravity of the offending. If you take someone's life, that has to be marked in an appropriate way. And so the art of sentencing is to find the right balance between those things. And I suppose part of the art of government is to draft laws that allow the judge to do that.
0: It's a very, very difficult balance. And I, I wanted to ask you, actually, about another aspect you you go into in the book about gang warfare, which is so often the background of unlawful killing for all ages. Do you think that humanity is capable of evolving away from that kind of activity? I think we need
1: to unpick what is meant by the gang. I don't know about you because you're so much younger than me. When I was a kid, we all belonged to a gang. We all read books that had Gangs in, and we all had our secret whistle, and we loved going off together. And you're never going to stop that happening. And why would you want to stop that happening? So, kids getting together, kids getting excited by activities together, kids finding satisfaction in the hierarchy of being amongst others, some of whom are a bit older kids who find real companionship where many of them don't find that brotherhood perhaps in their own homes, that not only are we not going to get rid of, but actually why would we want to? What we want to get rid of is the link between that and unlawful activity. So it isn't so much that we want to stop kids getting together in groups. the word gang has now become quite pejorative. The question is whether we can stop them doing it for unlawful, violent, drug-linked purposes. The answer, I'm afraid, is we'll never get rid of it entirely. But history shows we've always had that sort of gangs. You you know, you you look back over the centuries. There's never been a time when we haven't. But what we've got now is perfectly ordinary youngsters joining gangs in a way that is almost routine. And that, I think, we could do something about. I, I, I don't have... Answers. But I can tell you this if there was one simple answer, we'd have found it a long time ago. So, what we're looking for is a multiplicity of causes, and all of them are going to start long before you get to the courtroom. They're all going to start long before the actual crime that brings a child into the courtroom. It needs an enormous amount of thought and an enormous amount of resource put into it. Because by the time I see a child in the dock, it's too late. It's way too late for everyone. There'll be another child dead in a mortuary somewhere. There'll be a grieving family. There'll be the defendant's family thinking, how could this have happened? We need to stand way back and look at the problems before they get to that point. And that's really what I try to deal with, both in The Fiery Furnace and in The Veil of Tears, in both of those stories.
0: I want to move on to juries now, and clearly they play a very, very important part in your book. What really interests me is the subject of perverse verdicts by juries, where they come up. With a verdict that simply doesn't follow your guidelines and is a great surprise to everybody, how how are you meant to deal with those? There
1: are t- two different things. One is where the verdict goes against the weight of the evidence, and you sometimes see a, a, a judge walk. Well, you won't because you'll be the other side. But I see a judge w- walk out of court, just going, just shaking their heads and thinking. How? How how did they believe that? But that's what a jury is there for. A jury is there to assess the evidence. And however a judge feels about the evidence, that isn't his or her job. That isn't what they're there for. The jury is there to weigh the evidence. And although I've seen many cases where I look at a verdict and I think, I'm not sure I would have brought in that verdict it's very rare to see a verdict where you don't at least understand how the jury have got to where they are, which witness they've accepted, why they found it difficult to accept another witness. That's not technically a perverse verdict. A perverse verdict is one that actually goes entirely contrary to the law. So a verdict of for example, of not guilty is brought in, where there was no actual defence available to the defendant. It doesn't happen the other way round. You can't get a perverse conviction because if there is no evidence upon which a jury could convict, it's the duty of the judge to direct an acquittal. So it can't go wrong that way. But the judge doesn't or shouldn't ever direct a conviction. And so very, very occasionally you get a situation where the jury brings in a verdict which on the face of it was not available on the evidence. And that's happened over the years, over the centuries, going right back to the case of William Penn. And there have been a number of cases in the 20th century uh, where, for example, the defendants who, I, I think the expression is, sprung George Blake from prison, um, simply advanced the defence that they thought that 40 years that had been imposed upon him for what it was said he'd been convicted of was wholly unconscionable in a humane society and they were rectifying it. And there have been a few other cases like that. And curiously, after I wrote the story to which you are referring, which is Vengeance is Mine, a situation arose which was a borderline perverse verdict, really for the first time for quite a long time in our society. And it had to do with those three young people down in Bristol who toppled the statue and pushed it into the dock and who said they were doing it, in effect, because what it represented was something that in their judgment should not be there in society. And they said many other things, and the jury heard all the arguments. And it's raised the issue again as to whether or not juries should be able to do that. Uh, It's not for me to say, it's not my end of the market, but I can tell you why. Such verdicts have been tolerated over the centuries, and that is because they have been regarded as a bastion against a rule that did not respect humanity, did not respect fairness and justice. So that if there were um, a uh, law brought into effect that was not appropriate, it gave the jury, the power to deal with it within a courtroom. It would be quite a big step to take that away from them. And it hasn't been what you might call regularly abused over the centuries. I shall be very interested to see what comes of discussions on that subject in due course. But when I wrote about... That sort of scenario, not exactly, but that sort of scenario in Vengeance is mine. I had no idea that we were going to find that down in Bristol, I was then given a very interesting example shortly after I finished writing the story.
0: There, I think, is a very good place to conclude our discussion. Unless, Wendy, you've got something else that you want
1: to say about the book? Um, No, it was an enormous pleasure to write it. Perhaps, if you'd forgive me, Rosalind, I might just say this. It isn't written for any particular audience. It's written for anyone who just wants to know what goes on in a courtroom.
0: And that's exactly what you've achieved. Uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. And I very much look forward to speaking to you again about your next book, (laughs) because I'm sure this will go down extremely
1: well. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure talking to you. LawPod
0: UK is presented by Rosalind English and produced by One Crown Office Row.